We're we continuing the series that we began in that book a few weeks ago. I have told you as we have been embarking on this study of the Song of Solomon that throughout the history of the church, this song has been understood as speaking about the relationship of Christ and his church, Christ and his people. In every age, it's really a song that could be at any different, any time in the history of God's people. Only in our modern times has this song been greatly questioned as not being about that subject. It's been questioned and it's been turned into everything from a sex manual to a collection of songs written by ancient feminists who are trying to show how women could be assertive to um, a concocted kind of story where there's uh, two men that are competing for this uh, woman, the shepherd and the king, and a story that goes on with these three characters and uh, who wins out in that story. Um, Hardly something that I think the Holy Spirit would have labeled as the Song of Songs which is what it says about it in the first verse. It's much more than some story with people pushing for something or something like that. It's more than human relationships, ordinary human relationships. It's about the relationship of Solomon, whose name means Prince of Peace, and Shulamite, whose name means Princess of Peace. It's the feminine form of Solomon. And consider when this song was written. I haven't really, I didn't really mention this point before, but consider it was written at a time when marvelous promises had just been delivered to David about what? His son, his son Solomon, the prince of peace, the one that David called Now, think about this. He wasn't talking about his son that came immediately after him. I almost said not his son in the flesh. It was his son in the flesh, actually, but one that came much later. Um, It was the one that David called the one who is his Lord. He said, when he said in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, a son that he called Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the one, the, the son of David, the greater than Solomon, Solomon. This is the one of whom it was promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed by him, in him. While these promises, think about this, these promises were fresh off the press in, in the history of redemption. They had just come to God's people and the church was given this song. What were the people thinking about? David said, when he received those covenant promises in 2 Samuel 7, who who is me and what is my house? That God has said all these things to me. This is about the relationship of that son, that promised son, and his people. And just as they had received those promises, you see, right out of that, when Solomon comes along, then this song comes forth. It is so needed in our day. Because we do not know the love of Christ. We have a kind of a cold kind of a relationship with him. 
People struggle with this song because it seems like it's speaking about things that are unrealistic. How could the relationship with, uh, between us and Christ be described with this kind of language that we find here? We struggle with that. It's, it's, but it, you see, it's not called the Song of Songs for nothing. Because it's talking about something that is extraordinarily wonderful and too good to be true. So today we're looking at verse 4 of chapter 1. That's all we're looking at. We're going a bit slow here at the beginning. I don't think I'm going to go this slow all the way through. But every time I go to do a bit more, then there's so much there that I have to... um, I can't go very far. Um, But uh, I'm going to read the first four verses to you. Nevertheless, uh, just have the context of that. And I just want to mention that as I'm reading this, I'm not going to be reading where it tells you who's speaking. It has the names saying who's speaking. Um, those are kind of helpful, kind of helpful, uh, because they're based on the, you know, like whether it's plural or singular in the Hebrew, which you can't see in English all the way. You can't like we and I and that kind of thing. But you can't always tell, especially masculine and feminine in our English translation. So you can in Hebrew, and so they kind of say, okay, well, this is speaking to some masculine you pronoun, so that must be her speaking, or it must be the daughters of Jerusalem, and if it's plural, then they say it must be the daughters of Jerusalem, and maybe she's speaking, though, to the feminine, to her, to to Shulamite, so, you know, they they have to kind of try to figure out what's going on, who's speaking, Um, it's a judgment call. It's not in the translation. Those names are not in the translation of who's speaking at which time. So uh, that's why I choose not to read them when I'm reading. I just wanted you to know that as we're, we're going through here. I did, if you have an uh, outline, then you can see that there's a little M on after some of the pronouns to let you know. And I need to mention as well, odd thing, but in the New King James, there's a mistake on one of the use, the footnote says that it's a feminine, and it's not. It's a masculine, and uh, it's it's interesting. And I, you know, I double checked that with about I don't know, probably six different sources that all said it was masculine, and uh, nobody except the New King James um, seemed to believe that it was uh, it was feminine. It's strange that they would make a a mistake like that that would be in the margin. And there may be something deep in the Hebrew that I don't know about that it can be. It can go different ways because uh, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But uh, no one even mentioned it as a possibility of those that are Hebrew scholars. They all just said, these are all masculine here. So uh, just, just mention that as we go into our reading. Um, one more thing, too, with the we's and the, uh, whether it's the daughters of Jerusalem speaking I'm not so clear, like in this verse 4, that it is the daughters of Jerusalem speaking there. Because if I'm talking, I might be speaking about things of the church or the people of God. And I might say, well, you know, I, I love to serve God. We delight in him. And I'm still speaking. It's not like there's a group of people that came standing next to me and we said, we delight in him. And then we go back. And people look at it like that because it's a song, you know, that maybe there's a little chorus group here or something like that, but it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily so. It doesn't, just because it says we doesn't mean that it's a bunch of people speaking. So I uh, just, just wanted to, to bring that out because you'll, you'll, you'll note that in my exposition that I'm not necessarily buying into that it's the daughters of Jerusalem there. Okay, so here we are, Song of Solomon. This is the word of God. 
the first four verses. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. May the Lord add his blessing to his holy and infallible word. This song is so beautifully laid out that I ended up doing the same thing that I did last time when I preached in the earlier couple of verses, just going through each phrase for my headings. And I'm going to do that again today because as I was looking at structuring this and, you know, you kind of impose an outline onto a song or something. Well, it's got its own structure here that is so, is so helpful that there was no reason to do that. So uh, you'll see that each of my points are a phrase in, the, in, in verse 4. And again, we are contained in verse 4 today. So first it says, verse 4 begins, draw me away. She has just described in the previous two verses how wonderful he and his love are. Verse 2 and 3. Perhaps you remember that from last time. It was a couple of weeks ago. But she was asking for his kisses. Remember that? I explained to you that the kisses of Christ refer to the manifestations of his love. Everyone knows what kisses are about. You know, they're, they're a way to say, I love you. And so she's asking him to say, I love you, and, and to show his love to her. We saw that Jesus does that for us at various times, various situations, by his word and spirit. You may remember how I emphasized that to you, that in the word, we're told all about his love, about who he is, what he's done for us, his commitment to us, his promises to us, his plans for us, all of these things, and how much he loves us. But by his spirit, we're able to have a heart that understands and believes and receives those things. The kiss comes from word and spirit together. And you remember I said that if you just have spirit, you think you do, it can be just a mystical thing where you're, you're having all these ideas about his love that aren't even really rooted in who he is. It's rooted in an idol that you have, and you feel good, but it's not really good. And then, if the, on the other hand, though, if you only have the Word, and the Spirit's not there, then you're dry as sawdust. You know, he says, I love you, and you're like, yeah. You know, it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to you. And so we need to have God's Spirit to, to cause us to see the depths of His love and, and, and what this really really means to us. And so how does this happen? Well, Jesus told us in John 14 that he and the Father would manifest their love to us, that they would come and and dwell with us, and he explained that that would be by the Spirit. So that's why we say it's the Spirit and the Word together that he comes and and makes his love known to us. So it is not the kisses of Christ unless it is Word and Spirit together. If it's just one, it's not, you haven't been kissed. You haven't been, you, 
You haven't received his, uh, the manifestation of his love to your soul. The bride went on to talk about how, still looking at verse 2 and 3, where she, the reason that she's saying, draw me away. Uh, the bride went on to talk about his lo- how his love is better than wine. Wine represents the best that the world has to offer here. You know, you, we sang before, you have given my heart greater joy by far than when grain and new wine most abundant are. So it's better than that. It's better than a great crop of, or, or, or a vintage. Uh, those who are not distracted and blinded by the things of the world are called the virgins because they love him and they don't go after harlots. They don't go after idols. We saw a reference where Paul refers to the church that way in 2 Corinthians eleven two, where he speaks of his converts as a chaste virgin that he had betrothed to Christ. In other words, they, weren't, they, they were devoted to Christ. They didn't have idols. And then when, again in Revelation 14, 4, where they are described, where the church is described, the virgins, as those who follow the lamb wherever he goes and are not, um, are not given to harlots or defiled with women, it says there. So the church can be looked at also as one bride or as many individuals, individual members. And so that's why when we speak of the church, as I illustrated already today, I can say um, I, I love to uh, worship the Lord. Uh, we delight to come and call on his name. Uh, we, we switch back and forth. And so that's what you have going on here. The virgins make up the bride. And so together, they're the ones that truly do love Christ. So you see what follows with verse four then. The bride wants to be with him because he is so wonderful. That's the reason that she says, draw me away. She recognizes that she would be missing out on something wonderful if she doesn't connect with him, if she doesn't come after him. She would be a fool if she doesn't go after him because she would be missing what is most excellent and beautiful. His name is this ointment poured out of fragrance that that fills everything when we are consumed with him with, with a fullness and a delight. But there's something a little odd here in her request. It seems clear that she's already attracted to him. She's saying, you know, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. And and she's talking about how excellent he is. And then it's like, she she goes, draw me to you. Why is she, you know, you don't usually do that. If, if, If you're all like interested in someone, you don't have to say, draw me. You know, like you're already, you're already in. So what is, what is she looking for? Well, there's a reason for this. She recognizes the foolishness that is in her. The stupid foolishness that causes her to go after other things when he is right there. And we're going to see that as we go through this song. She realizes that if he has not drawn her, if he had not drawn her originally, she would have ignored him. She would have never had a bit of interest in him. She would go on in her sin. She would go on filling her life with the pursuit of empty things. If you know Christ, you know all about this folly. 
you know what is best for you. Even when, like, it's the morning, it's time when you generally set aside to meet with God and there's something interesting that comes on your, your feed somewhere and you go and you check that out instead of praying and reading the word of God. You, you weren't drawn to him. You, you were drawn to something else. And that's just a simple illustration. You could multiply that by a million other things. Dreaming, dreaming about something that, that you're purchasing. And that's all, that's where your heart is. No thoughts of this one who is so excellent. Draw me, draw me to you, you see. You see the stupidity. You see how he has drawn you in the past. You see how he is able to draw you. And that if he hadn't again, you would never have come to him or never stay with him. And so you say, draw me after you. And he works powerfully. And his drawing, having him draw you is desirable in another way too. And this is a way that you might say that even if you were attracted. Because you want the one that you're delighted with to show his love by drawing you, by showing that he wants you to come to him. And so that, that's another way to, to add to this whole thing that draw me away. Draw me after you. you, you you're yearning to be with him and you know it's the best place to be and you know that you, you do need to be drawn a lot because you're stupid and you get distracted. It, it's because of sin. If, if there wasn't any sin, we would, we would always be drawn to him. But because of sin, we know that there's a, there's a tendency in us to go, to go away. And she goes on to explain what happens when she says, draw me away. What happens to her and her companions? Again, remember the bride is both one and many. So what happens? She says, we will run after you. His drawing enlivens us as his bride so that we run. We run after him. We can become so dull in our devotion to Christ that you know, we're, we're maybe dragging along after him. Oh, got to go to the church, you know, whatever. We, we drag in our service. We limp along half-heartedly in our prayers. Oh, Lord, help me. You're not even thinking about what you're saying. You're just doing a little ditty. We're not hungry for his word. We come and say, oh, I read my Bible. Well, what did you read? Uh, I don't really remember. Uh, hungry to know him better. We need that. He draws us, you see. We, we run after him when he draws us. Then we mount up with wings like eagles. We run and do not faint, become weary. If, if you know him in a saving way, you know. You know about the difference by experience. You know when you're running after him and when you're not. There's, there's a radical difference. And I want to say to you, if you're not running after him, then you need to. You need to say, draw me away. And I would add to that, that if you are running after him, you also need to say, draw me to you. You turn from your sinful lusts and passions to him. 
you turn from your fears and your doubts to follow him with steadfastness, with perseverance, with dedication. I ask you, examine yourself. Are you running after him or are you limping along? Plead with him. Hebrews 12 speaks about this when it tells you to run the race that is marked out before you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the one that we come after, and you're to run the race with steadfastness. And then down in verse uh, 12 and 13, it's still Hebrews 12, it says, strengthen the hands which hang down. Hands aren't ready to do anything. Strengthen the hands that hang down. And the feeble knees. They're not ready to follow him. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. You know, he doesn't carry us in the race. He does something better. He draws us so that we run and are not weary and walk and are not faint. He changes us if you're dragged along in the way of where you're not really interested and you have to be carried along, it's not good. But if you're pursuing him and following hard after him, that's what you want. But notice how it says we here, we will run. I already mentioned how the church, the bride of Christ, is both one church and many members, and I hope that's clear to you already. But there's something more to notice here, especially in this change from the singular to the plural. Here, it brings out how the love of Christ is contagious. When one person is set on fire with ardent devotion to Christ, what does it do? That fire catches other people on fire. Some of them... Some of the people that are around will get angry and resentful because the fire will burn them because they're not the bride of Christ. They don't love Christ. And it stings them to see others following Christ. It's a savor of death unto death to them to see the grace of God in you and to hear your, your joy in the Lord. They come, but then there are others who are influenced in the opposite way and they realize, I'm missing out. There is so much, they, and they say, Lord, draw me like you're drawing so-and-so over here. And they want to come, and, and, and you go together to, to follow Christ. They, they come with you to seek him, and you're able to encourage and support each other. The whole bride, the bride is being made complete with her many members. And what is, happens with one influences the others. It, it can happen you know, in a family or anywhere. One person can come on fire. Sometimes it's like um, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He comes on and nobody else cares. But then what happened later? His wife also came along. Christiana, that's volume two in, the, in, the, um, in, in Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, we don't, that's how God works. There's even a special promise, you know, to parents about their children. Psalm 103, 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his 
that, that, that those who fear him are the, that's the ones that we're talking about. They delight in him and come after him. They they know that, that everything is in him. It's not out there. It says, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his co- covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So if a mom and dad start running after Jesus Christ, there's a promise to their children. Their children are going to come along too. You will encourage them with your words and you will encourage them with your example. And above all things, the Lord will draw them. They will see that he is truly first in your life, that he is more important to you than when grain and new wine increase, and they will want to follow him too. I always see that, you know, with parents when, you, when you're complaining about your relationship with the Lord and, you know, talking about, oh, you know, this, and, then you, uh, and then you're going to church and your kids are like, eh, I don't want to go. But why are they like that? Better, better check here. It's probably coming right out from you. It's probably where it started. It's almost always the case. It's been invariably the case with me, I think. <laughs> In my family, if it, it, I, I always see stuff reflected that, is coming from me. But, but where does the bride end up when she runs after him? Well, she tells us in the next part of verse four, the king has brought me into his chambers. <laughs> you see how beautifully this flows along? Draw me to you. We will run after you. And then where does she end up? The king brought me into his chambers. Just think of it. She's brought into the palace of the king. She's just an ordinary woman. But not only that, she's brought into his chambers. A word that refers to the inner rooms of the house. A place of intimacy and closeness. This is unfathomable to her. Who is she to be in the palace of the king at all? And to be brought into the inner rooms? She finds herself in a place that is... is, overwhelming to her. It's shocking. It's amazing that she could be there. This is the king whose name is anointment poured forth so that the virgins all love him. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one whose character is impeccable and whose love is incomparable. An ointment poured forth. He is God, and we are mere creatures, and he has brought us into his house. But even more than that, this chamber, this inner chamber, is known to us very much in Scripture. It's called the Holy of Holies, like Song of Songs, the holiest place of all, this, the, the, the king of kings, the, the greatest king of all, the holy of holies. What is the most striking thing about this place is that it is here that the absolute holiness of God is revealed to his church in the holy of holies. In the Old Testament, God set up the whole structure of the tabernacle and the temple so that the holy place, the holy of holies, was this inner place that only the high priest could go and only with 
blood of a sacrifice and only once a year because it was such an extraordinary thing for defiled, unclean men to be able to go into the presence of God. And he had to have all kinds of sacrifices for himself before he went in there as well. It was the inner sanctuary. And God showed his people through all the ceremonies that they were defiled and they couldn't even come near him, much less coming into the intimate chamber. They, they were outside and they, they had to be cleansed or they would be consumed by, by burning fire because of his holiness and purity. But here in the inner sanctuary, the priest went, went with the atonement, the atoning sacrifice representing Christ and his sacrifice, of course, that made all the other washings and purifications holy so that the people could be cleansed in this way. It's not only then that they were mere creatures who would never have expected to be brought into the house of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, this glorious King, but much more that they were defiled and impure and corrupt. And he's holy and pure and they're brought in. They're brought into the inner chamber. We're brought into this chamber when we come to Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ, a simple childlike faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is entering the Holy of Holies. It is here that he makes himself fully known to you. He is gloriously revealed as loving us so much that he was crucified for us. As soon as you believe on the Lord Jesus, you know that. Here we see his purity. When we come to the cross, when we come to Christ, here we see his justice. Here we see his mercy and grace. Here we see his love. Here we see his hatred of sin. He reveals to us the secrets, the depth of the gospel, how a sinner can be brought before God. He gives us the knowledge of his covenant through the blood of the covenant, the sacrifice. She begins to grasp in the holy place more and more what it means for him to offer himself for her. What we read in Ephesians. To know the height and length and depth and breadth of his love. That he actually, he, the son of God, the king of kings, should actually die for her. She sees righteousness and mercy at the same time. She sees his purity most clearly as it has never been seen before in the holy place. She sees forgiveness and the price that had to be paid for forgiveness. This is the glory of New Testament worship. We're brought into the Holy of Holies with Christ before his Father. The Father and the Son are revealed in the cross more than anywhere else. Think of it. You, you in the inner chambers, the most holy, majestic king whom you find to be full of beautiful grace and mercy is the one that you come to. Christ is that place. She and her friends respond to the king in his chamber. They say, okay, so she's in the chamber now. So what do they say? We will be glad and rejoice in you. That's the next phrase. What are we saying here when we say that as as the bride of Christ? Are we making a promise that we're going to keep up, maintain our gladness and joy? Or are we expressing the assurance that we have 
Wow, this place, I'm going to be happy forever in this place. I'm going to be happy forever. I think it's the second one. I'm going to be happy. I don't think she's, she's uh, saying, I'm going to keep myself glad. I think she's saying, how can I be anything else but glad? We will be glad and rejoice. She's declaring how sure she is that she'll always be happy. When we get a true glimpse of Christ, we bring glory to him by supposing that there is so much in him that we will forever be filled with gladness and joy. Surely she will always be happy along with her companions in his holy chamber. And she surely will. So will you, Christian, if you're a Christian. It's not a shallow joy. It's a joy that sustains you in trials and temptations. Yeah, the trials and temptations, they can knock you around. But you have a joy in him that overcomes your fears. Indeed, how can you be anxious when you see his great love for you, even in the holy place? You have here a gladness that will root out bitterness and quell your spirit that used to flare up with anger. How can you be bitter about things that happened to you in the past or that other people did to you when you realize that that this one loves you so much and that he even used some of those hard things in your past to shape you, to bring you into this court where you are now, into the holy place? How can you flare up at anger about things that happened to you or around you when you, you're, you know that you're in his hands, that, that even those troubles, those present troubles, are there to deepen your relationship with him. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle and you don't have sorrows and you don't weep tears, but it means that there's a joy that is at the foundation of who you are in Christ. Because of the relationship with him, there's assurance, there's a certainty of a hope and, a, and, a, and a, it can allow you like Christ for the joy that was set before him to go to the cross and suffer all that shame. The gladness you have in his love will enhance your devotion and service to him as well. What does a bride do when, she's, when she really loves her husband? What does she do? She, she serves. She, gives her, she pours herself out to him. What does the Bible say? We love him because he first loved us. George Mueller talked about how important it is to be happy in the Lord. Now, I said that this isn't about keeping up the happiness, but I think it, I think it is important for us to realize that we need to keep up the happiness. We realize that we have a foundation that's always going to be there, but you know that there are times when that joy is not there in the Lord, and you need to restore that joy. And George Mueller talked about how important it is to be happy in the Lord, and I, I really resonate with this. This is something that has been very important to me in the last um, dozen years or so. He had had this as something important to him for a lot longer than that when he wrote this. He said, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended is this. Above all things, to see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. What's the chief in demand? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so above all things, to see that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. 
day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The spirit of all true effectual service is joy in, the, in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. I find it in my own life that whenever I am starting to feel anxious or disappointed, the best thing for me to do is to think about Jesus Christ, his love, his strength, his promises, his commitment to me. And that quells the fears, deals with the disappointment, it restores gladness and joy in him. But we know that too often our gladness and joy in him slips away. So what are we to do when that happens? Well, I kind of just said, didn't I? The bride goes on to tell us so here in the song, in the next line. She says with her companions, we will remember your love. The love of King Jesus, of course. We will remember your love more than wine. You remember his love when you bring it to mind. You think about it. You talk about it with your friends. You talk to God about it. You pray and you talk to, you don't just pray, Lord, give me this, help me with it, do this. You talk about his love for you. This is what we do at church. We remember his love. We gather on the Lord's day because the first day of the week is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we remember that he rose from the death for our justification, showing us that his work was complete. It's a day of gladness. We gather to hear the word of God preached. We gather to hear the word of God read. We gather to sing praises to him and to thank him for his grace and love. We gather at the Lord's table to remember his love for us on the cross. This is what you're to do each day in family and personal worship as well. Not gathering at the Lord's table, but uh, looking to the Lord to remember his love, remembering his love. You come remembering his love and seeking to learn of it. This is what you do through the day as you receive constantly from him. And you must remember his love more than wine. Like it says here, I think I've already explained to you this morning what that refers to appears earlier as well. Last week we saw that it was the virgins who loved him. We saw that they were virgins because they had not given their hearts to harlotry. Idols are things that you love more than Christ instead of Christ that you give the place that he should have. It's adultery. It's spiritual adultery. James says to, um, to flee from this adultery so, so that you, you lose sight of him and his excellence in love. Idols, you see, also are not secure. If you have an idol, you're going to be anxious because that thing can't carry you. It can't, it can't help you. It, you. it makes you feel good. It doesn't really have any ability to Do what's necessary. Idols cannot protect you and idols cannot love you.
They promise to love you. They promise to make you happy. They give great promises, and it looks so good. But in the end, it brings sorrow and death. They draw you away from relationship with Christ, from life in Him, who is the source of all happiness. So you need to keep up holy remembrance of Christ and His love more than even the best things of this life, even more than wine. You keep up this remembrance of him by doing just what we have seen the bride do in our text. She cried out to him. What have we seen so far? Draw me away. Then when he drew her, she ran after him. Then when she ran after him, she ended up with him in the intimate place, in his chambers. You are to ever be moving to a greater and greater delight. We run the race in this life until it's complete. Your joy doesn't come then just by saying, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be glad. And you try to put on a smile. And it, does, it just doesn't work very well. You have to have this joy that comes up from, from this, this relationship with Christ that he's drawing you and you've run after him. That's where it comes from. The bride concludes verse 4 with these words about her and her friends in the inner chambers of Christ. Christ Jesus. She looks at them, her friends, and she says, rightly, rightly do they love you. You know how frustrating it can be if you see a, a young woman. I, I remember this in high school. Sometimes it may have been, no, I, was, I was jealous, I don't know, but you would see a really nice girl in high school, and it'd be some jerk of a guy, and you know, she's just thinks he's wonderful, and everybody's going, She's a nice girl. Why is she with that guy? And you know that he's going to like not treat her right. And he's going to abuse her and all this kind of stuff. And she's just like, oh, and she's going off with him. And you, you, you don't look at it and say, rightly do they love you. As you see, I'm going off with him. It's, it's like, this is wrong. This is, this is no good. And, and that's the way it is when we see somebody like following the wrong stuff instead of the Lord. It's like, this is, this is not going the right way. This is bad. This is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But with Christ, those who know him look on other members of the church. And what happens when you see somebody that's really delighted with Christ? You say, yes, they're finally getting it. They're finally going the right way. Rightly, do they love you? We say to our master, it's so right for the bride of Christ to love him because it, it's her whole calling to the greatest commitment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's everything. That's what it's all about is loving him. And it's so right because he is worthy of that love. And she will never be disappointed if she loves him. She will find everything in him. And I say all of these words, but I come short. I don't have that love that I would desire to have for Christ. And I yearn for you to have that love as the flock of Jesus Christ. To see all of us come alive with our delight in Him. Lord, draw me away. 
we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice. We will be glad and rejoice in your love. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Please stand. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you that you have looked upon us, Lord, and had mercy upon us. We're just a bunch of unworthy sinners. We don't have anything to commend ourselves to you. We're, we're polluted. We're defiled by sin. We're unclean. Remember when you showed your people that in the wilderness, when you just brought them out of Egypt and told them they better not even come and touch the mountain because they'd be destroyed if they did by your holy indignation. Then you set up that tabernacle with all of the promises, with washings and purifications and shedding of blood and the inner sanctuary where the, the atonement was made that reconciled your people to God. You declared your love. You drew your people to you. You said, come to me. I will be your God. You will be my people. Long ago, in fact, you had promised that even to Abraham, even before that to the ones that were before him. We praise you, O Lord, though, for the fullness of that and the expression of that that all came together in Jesus Christ. That the Son of God should come to Mary a filthy, polluted bride, to take her into his inner sanctuary, to purify and cleanse her by his own blood shed for her sins, to commit himself to her, to love her as she had never been loved before, to find her cut off and rejected and isolated and to bring her in. Oh Lord, how we pray that you would draw us after you. How we pray that we would run and not be weary, that we would walk and not faint, that we would mount up with wings as eagles, that we would come after you, O Lord, and that you would bring us into the sanctuary, the holy place, that we might commune with you in spirit and in truth. Father, we need to see the truth about the atonement. It's not that you come to us. The world's gospel is that you think we're just so wonderful and we don't realize how wonderful we are and that you come and tell us that so that we'll know. It's really quite different than that. It's that we're defiled and ruined, but you love us anyway. And you come and take us and change us so that you truly delight in us. You make us and restore us into your image all over again so that we become like you and the love that you have, we have, and the service that you have, we have, and the the purity that you have is given to us. Father, we pray that, that we might know the fullness of this being of your wife, that we would know all that's involved in that, of being your bride, that we might live in the gladness and joy of this. Father, draw us to you, we pray. Draw us, bring us in. Get us running, Lord. Get us delighted in who you are. 
Please forgive us, Lord, for all the ways we come short. We are your people. It's right for us to love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.